our brothers and sisters, uh, we're going to continue our study in the Beatitudes. Last week, we looked at blessed are those who are poor in spirit. So we digged into that to get an understanding. And today, we're going to continue to dig in the Beatitudes. And we'll look at verse number four, the second Beatitude, which is blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Beautiful beatitude. And so before we dig into this text, I just want to throw this out there to you. One, as we mentioned last week, beatitudes, that's not actually in the scripture. That's just a title that that section of scripture was given. And it comes from a, a Latin word which speaks about happiness and joy. So they call this the Beatitudes, the blessedness. And the other thing is that Beatitudes are found all throughout the Bible. So you can find Beatitudes are a proclamation of blessings all throughout the scripture. Old Testament, New Testament. For example, Psalms uh, 1.1 that says, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the paths of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. Blessed. That's a pronouncement of blessing. That's a beatitude. You can go to John, for example. Jesus says, Blessed are those who believe without seeing me. Beatitudes in Revelation. So you have Beatitudes all throughout the scripture. What makes this one unique is that you have so many in a row. In the Psalms, you have a ton of Beatitudes. But here on the Sermon on the Mount, we get eight or nine, depending on how you count them, straight blessings, Beatitudes. And so that's what makes it unique. What also makes it unique is it's Jesus Christ speaking. It's, it's the Lord incarnate speaking and letting us know what blessings are. So Beatitudes are all throughout the scripture. But we're looking at a unique circumstance here where they're all lined up verse after verse, verse after verse, blessed. And this word blessed that we have here, it comes from the Greek word um Makariros. And basically, that word means or it, it takes on a connotation of happy, fortunate, or um, what is it? Happy, fortunate, or having favor. And it's it's a Greek Roman word. So for example, during the Greek society or Greek Roman society, when they would use this word blessed, they would use it to describe someone who was rich. Or someone who had a lot of children, because at that time, having a lot of children meant that you were you were well. I know in society now we kind of look at people that have a lot of kids, but we look down upon people. I mean, they have a lot of kids like, whoa, all those kids you have. That's where we're at in society. But back in this period, having a lot of kids, that was a sign of blessings. And so when they would speak to different people in society, if a person had a lot of money or a lot of children in, in this Greek Roman culture, they would say, whoa. This means that the gods, because they didn't believe in one true God, they were pagan, so they believe in multiple gods. So they would say that the gods have their favor on you because you have a lot of kids or because you have wealth. They were saying you are favored by God. And so because they thought they were favored by God because they had these different things, 
They believed that those people were going to live a better life. And so that's why they would call that those people blessed. But what Jesus is doing here in these Beatitudes is he is turning the culture upside down on his head. And so I suppose to thinking, yes, the rich, you are truly blessed. Jesus is saying, no, here in this beatitude, verse four, he's saying that blessed are those who actually mourn. These are the ones that have God's favor. It's not what the culture is telling you, he's saying. But it's the ones who mourn. These are the ones who are truly favored by God. These are the ones who are truly special. So this is an attack on the culture Jesus is doing right here in this beatitude by redefining or redeeming what blessed or blessedness means. So as we look in verse four, as we read it, let's read it together. It says, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. The fact that Jesus calls mourning a blessed thing tells us that this is not something that naturally comes to men. He's calling it blessed. And the reason he's calling it blessed is because naturally when we mourn, you can say anybody does that, right? Even pagans, even atheists, whatever you want to call it, whatever religious belief you have, everybody mourns. So he's not talking about a common sorrow. He's not just talking about the mourning of a, uh, of a loved one that somebody loses. Everybody does that. So he's not highlighting that type of mourning. But he's talking about a, a mourning that only those of the kingdom of God possess. Again, a mourning that only those who are citizens of the kingdom of God, citizens of the kingdom of heaven possessed. How do I know that? That he's referring to that type of mourning about the kingdom of God? Flip over a couple of chapters. Go to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Here Jesus is ending his sermon here on the Sermon of the Mount. And he's letting you know basically why he's saying what he's saying. He's giving us an idea of, of why he's preaching this. Look what he says here in verse 21 through 24. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my father who is in heaven will enter. 22, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Look at 24. Look what he says. Therefore, meaning referring to the previous verses, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them, they may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. So Jesus basically ends his Sermon on the Mount. He's talking to the same people and he ends his Sermon on the Mount by telling them who will enter the kingdom of heaven. And he says that the ones that are going to enter the kingdom of heaven are those who do my father's will. And my father's will is everything that I just finished telling you. All of those beatitudes that he just went over, all of this sermon, all of that is the father's will. And he said, those that do that, those are the ones 
who are going to enter into the kingdom of heaven. So he's identifying, again, the characteristics or the quality of those who actually belong to the kingdom of heaven. So he's showing us that this morning is not something, a, a morning that anyone will have, but only those who are citizens of the kingdom of heaven will possess these things. These are the ones that are doing these things, the will of my father. So, brothers and sisters, you must understand this, that when you say that you are a Christian, when you say that Jesus is Lord, what you're saying is that you are everything to me. And it's not just a, a proclamation, but you're saying that you're my Lord and all these things in your scripture that I'm reading here in this beatitude or in this entire sermon. I am trying to put that on because I am a citizen of the kingdom. So you must examine yourself, my brothers and sisters. You must work out your salvation to see, do I possess these things that I read in these Beatitudes? Do I possess the things that I'm reading in the scripture? Because Jesus says those who are of the kingdom of God that do these things will enter into. So you got to ask your own self. You got to look at your own life. Are these traits that I'm reading in the scripture, in this sermon, this sermon on the mount, these Beatitudes, are these traits that I possess? Because Jesus said those who are entering to the kingdom of God, they will do these things. They will show these actions. They will have these qualities. So being a Christian, it's more than you having a, 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 a phrase or a title, but it's an examination of your life to see am I possessing the things that citizens of the kingdom of God have. So ask yourself that. So again, so we see that this morning that Jesus is talking about here, it is not a common sorrow. It's not a, a morning of just regular people because he calls it blessed. But what exactly does it mean? What does it mean to say that blessed are those who mourn? Let's interpret scripture with scripture. Go to Matthew chapter 11 to see if we can get an idea of what Jesus is talking about when he says, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Matthew 11, look at verse 20 through 24. I'm going to read it. It says this, Then he began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. So this is Jesus here. He says, Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles, for if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago. They would have turned long ago if I was doing those same miracles in this other city. And not only would they have repented long ago, he says, he says, but they would have repented in sackcloth, what? In ashes. That's a key for us here. They would have repented in sackcloth and ashes. See, sackcloth and ashes in the Jewish culture, that was a sign of mourning. That was a sign of contrition. That was a sign of sorrow. So he's saying here in this verse that if if I would have done these miraculous things, not only would they have repented, but they ever would have repented in sorrow and grief. They would have actually felt bad. They would have, they would have felt bad for their sins. It would have bothered them. They would have actually mourned over what they were sinning against who they sinned against. So he's bringing us out that it's more than just a repentance, but it's a, a repentance with mourning, with grief, because you realize you have sinned against his holy God. And we see this also in Psalms 30. I want to show you. Go to Psalms 30, Old Testament. This will help us really understand sackcloth and ashes. Psalms 30, verse 11. 
We here? In Psalm starting verse 11, look what David says here. They give us an idea of what sackcloth and ashes meant. He says this, you have turned for me my mourning, there goes our mourning, into dancing. Look, you have loosed my sackcloth and girded me with what? Gladness. So you're saying the, the opposite of, of gladness is the sackcloth, which symbolizes what? Mourning. So David is talking about mourning here. This is mourning over sin. So when Jesus tells us in Matthew that those cities, those people in those towns, they would have repented in sackcloth and ash, he said they would have repented and been mourning over their sin. They would have been actually broken. It wouldn't have been just a nonchalant thing. But they actually would have been mourning. And this is exactly what happened with Jonah when Jonah went to go preach to Nineveh. Remember, he goes to Nineveh and in chapter three, God tells that he's going to destroy this city. And I want you to go to tell the people there. And when Jonah goes to preach what God is going to do, the people repent. And not only do they repent, it says that they all put on sackcloths. And not only were they so serious about their repentance, but they put on sackcloth on their animals. So they got their cows and their goats and they put sackcloth on there to show I'm sincere. I am mourning over the sins that I have just did. God, please pass over. Don't allow this destruction to come upon me. See, they were actually mourning. See, I hope this is helping us now start to get the idea of what Jesus meant when he said, blessed are those who mourn. He's talking about mourning over sin, repentance. That's the, the mourning he's talking about. He's talking about a humility, being poor in spirit over your sinful condition. There, he said this, this should have some mourning effect on your life. And he said, those are the people that are blessed. Those are the people that have the favor of God. Those that mourn over their sin. Those that know their, their sinful condition. Those who are not just nonchalant. And see, the people that Jesus is talking to here on the Sermon on the Mount, they were actually perfect and ripe for this message. But you, you have to understand, when Jesus is on this mountain, most of the people in the audience, guess what? They're Jewish people. Yes, there are some pagans, there are some Gentiles probably sprinkled in there, but our Lord's mission on earth, his first advent, it was to Israel. Those were the people he was going to. And these were the people who had many reasons to mourn. Why? Because up until John the Baptist, there was 400 years of silence, 400 years of not having a new fresh word from the Lord. I want to show you this. Go to your Bible and go to Matthew. Get the first page of Matthew. I'm showing you a little experiment here. Get the first page of your Bible. Hold Matthew in one hand. The first page of Matthew. And then turn to your left and grab the last page of Malachi. So you got two pages in your hand. You have Malachi probably in your left. You have Matthew in your right. Are we here? Is everybody here? So in your left hand, you're holding the Old Testament, right? Which is Malachi. In your right hand, you're holding the New Testament, which is Matthew. Between these two pages, there is a 400-year leap. There is a 400 year leap, 400 years since God has sent the prophet, a new and fresh word to his people, Israel. 400 years has gone by. They have not had a fresh new word from the Lord. 
400 years, their people are now enslaved by the Romans. See, they have a reason to really be mourning right now. And not only that, when God sends a prophet finally after 400 years, which is John the Baptist, the words that John the Baptist has, his, his words for him is to repent, to turn back to God. See, you got to understand this. Israel was in bad shape at this moment. They were a people who had turned away totally from God. It was real bad. They were, they really were into the culture. That's why Jesus and John the Baptist, their first words were repent. When Jesus came on earth, he wasn't coming to give Israel a pat on the back saying good job. No, he's called them to repent because they have gone so far away from God. They are so far off course. So they had many reasons to mourn the nation of Israel as a whole should have been mourning because of the darkness that the nation was in. You had the Pharisees, the religious rulers, they were substituting the commandments of God for the commandments of man. They were teaching all of these wrong things. The, the religious leaders weren't shepherding the people. See, Israel had reason to mourn. That's why they were right for this message that Jesus is preaching. They should know mourning because their nation was in a bad situation. So they should have understood what Jesus was saying here. Blessed are those who mourn because mourning should have been a part of them. Mourning is a part of their history because of the sin that they so engaged in. In the Old Testament, the prophets talked about it. So mourning should have been a part of them. But I want to keep digging into this blessed of those who mourn. I want to give you another example of that so you can see it with your eyes. Go to Luke chapter 8, verse 36 through 50. It's a lot of verses, but I think this will help you to understand what Jesus means by the mourning that he's saying is blessed. I'm sorry, I said 8, 7, 7, sorry. Luke chapter 7, verses 36. I said 8, I'm like, hold on, this verse doesn't sound familiar. All right, verse chapter 7, verse 36. This is Jesus' interaction with the Pharisee. Just kind of just let me just brief you here real quick. So Jesus is invited to this Pharisee's house, right? He's invited to this religious ruler's house to have dinner. And when he goes there, um, this lady finds out that Jesus is in town and this lady is known as a sinner. And so this lady goes up to Jesus. And here we're going to get the interaction between uh, this lady and Jesus, this sinner, this sinner, uh, messed up, low down lady. We're going to see her interaction with Jesus. Look at verse 37. It says, and there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she learned that he was reclining at the table, talking about Jesus in the Pharisee's house, she bought an alabaster vial of perfume and standing behind him at his feet. Look what she's doing, you guys. Remember our topic. She is weeping. She began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with perfume. So you have a lady here who is broken. She is weeping. She hears that Jesus is here at this Pharisee's house. And so she goes there and falls at his feet. But look what the Pharisee, how he responds. Now, when the Pharisee had invited him and saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, so he's doubting who Jesus is, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. So he's like, Jesus doesn't know. He's not a prophet. Because if he was a prophet, he would know that this sinful woman is touching and kissing his feet. And look what Jesus said. Look how he responds. 
And Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, say it, teacher. A moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and another 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said, you have judged correctly. 44, he says, turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. She has wet my feet with her tears and has wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason, I say to you, her sins. Now we see why she's weeping which are many have been forgiven for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. 48. Then he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. Those who were clamped the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So you see what's happening here. You have this sinful woman, you got to understand, in this culture, a sinner didn't go by a religious ruler. This woman is so bold in her sins that she goes to the religious ruler's house. That's a boldness. They didn't even deal with each other. She knew that the religious people don't like me, and she probably didn't have no dealings with them. But yet, because of Jesus, because of her sinful condition, she is going despite her pride. Despite that. And so she now goes there, and what is her response? Her response is that she's now weeping over her sins because her sins are great. See, this lady sees her depravity. She is poor in spirit. She feels the weight of her sins and comes to Jesus looking for relief. See, in the midst of her mourning, she now receives comfort as Jesus says, your sins have been forgiven your faith in me, he said, has saved you. Do you see where her mourning has led her? Her mourning leads her to the Lord. Her, her mourning makes her pursue God. It makes her pursue Christ. That's where her mourning has led her. She realizes her brokenness. And Jesus says, your sins have been forgiven you. Your faith in me has saved you. And when he says has saved you, he's using the Greek word sozo, sozo. And it comes from, it comes from the word, um, that we use for, uh, salvation. Soteria. So what he's saying is that your faith have saved you from danger. Cause that's what salvation is. Salvation or soteria is to be saved from the wrath of God, to be saved from danger. And he's saying your faith has saved you from danger. It has saved you from eternal damnation. It has saved you from what your sins was casting you to. Your sins, your faith in me, he said, has saved you, has removed the wrath of God. And that's why she's weeping, because she wants to be rescued from the guilt of her sins. See, she's, she's mourning. She's, she's bothered by it. It's not just a nonchalant thing that I go and live unrighteously, that I live a reckless life. But her sins have been so weighty upon her that it's brought her to the feet of Jesus. And she's weeping with tears, crying, because the state of her sinful condition. 
And here's an inconvenient truth for some of us here, and I'll even put myself in that category. The inconvenient truth is that for some of us in here today, when we read, read this passage, we feel guilty. When we read this passage, we feel guilty. The reason we feel guilty is because we say, I have never been like this woman here. Yes, I feel bad for my sin. Yes, I don't like it, but I, I've never been like this woman to the point of where I'm openly weeping over my sins and the greatness of it. Yet, Yes, I felt bad that I sinned, or yes, I felt bad that I did wrong, but I, I've never been here like this, this woman who, who walks in the boldness and openly pours out upon the feet of Jesus. I haven't done that yet. Yes, I, I feel bad, but I, I've never done what this lady is doing here in Scripture. Does that mean that I'm really saved then? Because I, I've never poured out like her. Does, does that mean I really know Jesus? Do I really know the Lord? That's some. That's a feeling that some of us have. And I know that because I've had this feeling. God, I, I know sin is wrong, but I don't remember many times in my life, God, where I'm like this sinful woman here, Jesus. Yes, I love you and I don't, and I hate sin, but I, I just don't remember times where I've been so broken, where I'm brought to tears and on my knees. If this is you, you're not alone. There's many of your brothers and sisters in Christ who have felt this way. Even the, the great Charles Spurgeon known as the Prince of Preachers, in his book, All of Grace, when he describes his conversion, he talks about the time when he would get so frustrated that he wasn't weeping over his tears, over his sins. He would get so mad that he wasn't just broken and just sobbing over his tears, getting so frustrated until the point he realized that he's actually getting frustrated and doing the thing over which he got frustrated about. Do you get what I'm saying? See, the point is that there are times in your life when, yes, you will come to tears. You, you your sins, it, it breaks you and you mourn deeply. And there's other times in your life where maybe you don't mourn tears, but you are broken over your sinful condition. The point is, you want to feel something. If, if you can just go live a sinful life and say, I know Jesus, and that is a scary thing, my brothers and sisters. If you can just live a reckless life and it has no effect on you, there's no mourning, there's no brokenness, and that is a problem, my brothers and sisters. Mourning over sin, over our spiritual depravity, it's a sign of true conversion. That you actually feel something. Because when you become in Christ, you become new creatures, the Bible says in First and Second Corinthians 5.17. And that means that you begin to take on the mind of God. And so the things that God hates, you hate. And the things that God loves, you love. So when sin becomes to enter into your life, you feel it. It bothers you. You mourn. You hate it. You're not nonchalant. But it actually grieves you. And the Bible actually has a term for this type of sorrow, this type of mourning. It's called godly sorrow. Godly sorrow to differentiate it from worldly sorrow. Go with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. I want to show you this. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. Talks about our mourning here.
So here Paul is writing to the Corinthians, a church, over a sin issue in the church. This is the same church that we read earlier today who was kind of arrogant and not really putting sin out the church. Remember, the guy has mm-hmm. took his father's wife, but now they repented. There's some things going on here. And so now we're picking this up. Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. Look at what Paul says here. He says, for the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world, what? Produces death. So there's a sorrow, our godly sorrow, and then there's a sorrow of the world that produces death. The sorrow of God, a godly sorrow, a godly mourning, leads to repentance, leads to turning, leads to a change of direction, but a worldly sorrow leads to death. See, worldly sorrow, the example I like to use is, I got messed up. I got wasted last night. I got drunk. I got high. I got whatever. And now I'm waking up with a huge hangover and I got all these things and I'm saying, God, I'm so sorry. I'm never doing this again. Please, if you just take this, this headache away, I'm never doing it again. And then Friday, Saturday night, friends call you. You're back doing the same thing. You just express worldly sorrow. You really weren't godly sorrow. This was a worldly sorrow for just the current situation. There was no repentance in your heart. There was no true change. There was no true mourning. That was just a, a worldly sorrow. But godly sorrow is a sorrow that leads to true repentance, that leads to a true turning. That's why Jesus is saying it is blessed are those who mourn. Because mourning leads to God. Morning shows you that you are insufficient in yourself because you recognize your sin. See, it is a blessed thing to feel despair or to mourn over sin and unrighteousness. Because all do not sin. I mean, all do not mourn. It's a work of grace that you can see Jesus as holy and your sins as unholy. All do not mourn like you do, my brothers and sisters. Look at the uh, the Apostle James. I want to show you how he addresses mourning in the in the life of a believer. Go to James chapter four, verse eight and nine. James chapter four, verse eight and nine. Look how he addresses the mourning that should be in a believer's life. Look what he says here. He says, chapter 4, verse 8, he says, Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Here goes the verse that's going to shock the whole world. The world doesn't want to read verses like 9 we're about to look at. He says, Be miserable, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. What? James is saying to be miserable? To mourn, he's telling me? Hold on, am am I reading my Bible right? Is James telling people in here to, 
to be miserable, to mourn and to weep and to, to let your laughter turn into to gloom? Why is he saying that? See, the reason James is saying that is because if you go back in these uh, verses, the believers were cheating on God with the world. See, you gotta understand this. In Christ, Christ is the husband. He, he's the, the bride's groom and we are the brides and we've been married or we have been betrothed to Jesus. And when we go off and we live outside of the life that Christ called us to, when we go and live in sinful ways, we are like a, a person cheating on their spouse. So James calls them adulteresses in verse number four because they have been cheating on God with the world. And not only were they cheating on God with the world and living worldly and doing all these worldly things, they were laughing. They, they weren't bothered by it. They, they weren't grieved. They were just, they were just living as if it was, it was okay. And that's why he's telling them, you need to stop that laughing. You should actually be weeping and mourning over your sinful condition. You shouldn't be laughing that you are now friends of the world, that you are, are, are adulteresses. There should be mourning happening in your life. Your, your joy should be turned to gloom because of what you're doing in your situation. See, brothers and sisters, this used to be us. If you are new in Christ, this used to be us. Before Jesus, we can go and live in all sinful ways. Do you remember those days before you knew Jesus? You can do so many sinful things and you would laugh about it. You would joke about it. You would go out and get drunk or maybe you would go out and get high and you would engage in sexually explicit relationships and you thought it was fun. It was entertaining. You thought it was cool. See, we were just like that, but something happened where the grace of God came upon us through the Holy Spirit, and now we mourn over things like that. That's why Jesus said, blessed are you. It is a blessed thing that you mourn over unrighteousness and sin in your lives when it comes upon you. That is a blessing from God. That is the favor of God that you can actually feel because there's times there's people that cannot even feel. They can just go on living unrighteous. They can just go on doing unholy things and laughing about it and joking about it and being okay and arrogant about it. Just like the church in First Corinthians when they became puffed up and arrogant as opposed to kicking a person out of the church and mourning over their sin. They were okay with it. See, this was us, brothers and sisters. This was you before you knew Christ. We hung out with the people that like to do the things we like to do. We were friends of the world. But now in Christ, we're ashamed of those things that we used to do when we were dead in sin. But now we mourn those things. Now we're grieved about those things. And not only are we grieved about those things in our own lives, but we're grieved about those things in our brothers' and sisters' lives. See, it's not just a mourning of uh, or being blessed when we're mourning for our own lives, but that mourning extends to others. That's why Paul was calling out the church in Corinth. It wasn't just them, but it's like, you should be mourning because this is happening in the church. And look what your brother is doing. He, he's taking his father's wife. That should bother you. you. You shouldn't be nonchalant about that. You shouldn't be able to just come in and start praising when you know that sin is just sitting right here when they're sitting in the camp. It should bother you. You should not be so nonchalant about it. Jesus says in Mark 3, verse 5, or it's, we're describing Jesus, and 
He's going to heal a man, but it's on a Sabbath day. And so the Pharisees are, are, are just against it. They're kind of scolding him. They don't want him to heal on a Sabbath day, basically. And the scripture says in Mark 3, 5, that Jesus was grieved by the hardness of their hearts. He was bothered by their sin. He was bothered by how messed up their hearts are. So brothers and sisters, do you mourn over the sins of people in your family, your other brothers and sisters in Christ who are falling short in these areas? Do, do you, does it bother you? Or do you just go about nonchalant thinking about you? Do you, do you grieve? Do you mourn those things? If so, that is a blessed thing, my brothers and sisters, that you could do. That is blessed. See, when I, when I see that transgender individual struggling with his identity, it breaks my heart. I don't just look at it and say, oh no, that, that bothers me. When I, when I think about that prostitute or those teenagers just going around and sleeping around and doing different things, that, that breaks my heart. That, that sin, that unrighteousness, it bothers me. When I see that guy stuck in the gang life and with evil and murder in his eyes and money and women, that, that bothers me. See, that sin, that unrighteousness, I just can't look past it. It, it bothers me to the point of where I just want to yell out, Marinetta. Maranatha, it's an Aramaic word for come, O Lord. Maranatha saying, God, just come. That's how I feel. I'm saying, Jesus, just come. Just destroy this wicked world, Lord. Just come, Maranatha. Because it bothers us. It should bother you, brothers and sisters. You take it on the mind of Christ. You begin to look at sin and unrighteousness just like Jesus does. And it grieves you. It bothers you to the point of mourning. But as we look at this fallen world and we see the unrighteousness in it, that mourning also leads us to our hope. Because we find our comfort in Christ's return. We find our comfort in the new heavens and the new earth that will come. In Revelation 21 Verse 4, he says that he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. See, this is the hope of those who mourn. This is the comfort. Knowing that Christ will return, knowing that there's going to be a new heavens and new earth. So Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. That's part of the comfort of the believer. Knowing that your Lord is coming back. Yes, you can't, you hate this world. You get tired of how wrong it is. But we have this hope knowing that there's going to be a new heavens, new earth where righteousness dwells. See, that is our hope. That is our comfort in the midst of this broken world. When we, we see all the rapes and the murders and all those things that grieve our heart as we see our brothers and sisters do murder and, 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 and um, violence to one another, those things begin to grieve our heart. But then we have this comfort knowing that this world will end and that our Lord is coming. That comforts the heart to know that this is not it, that our life goes beyond it. And our comfort is not just this futuristic thing, but it's also a right now thing. Because we as believers, we fall into various sins. We fall into various different sins. 
And when godly sorrow begins to work in our heart, when that godly sorrow and repentance works in our heart by the Holy Spirit, it leads us to the cross. It leads us back to Jesus, understanding that, guess what? Even though I fail, my sins have been forgiven me. See, that is the comfort that we have even when we fall. We know that the cross, that Jesus paid it all. So even when we fall ourselves, we have this comfort. We have this comfort of knowing that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, that is a comfort for us when we fall in sin. To know that it has not separated me. To know that I have the cross to look to. To know that my sins have already been taken care of. Yes, I'm godly sorrow, but I have this comfort in Jesus and what he has done. See, that is our comfort in those moments where you get weak and you slip up and fall. So when we mourn, he comforts us. We're comforted by the gospel. See, when we repent in godly sorrow, we are comforted as we look to the cross knowing that he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. See, that is what we look to. That is the comfort of our heart. When we fall in sin, we, we look in knowing that, as Romans 8.1 says, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. See, that is the comfort that we get in our mourning over our sinful condition, knowing that, yes, I'm broken. Yes, I fell. But Jesus is greater, and that is where my hope is. So it's a blessed thing, my brothers and sisters, for you to mourn. It's a blessed thing that sin bothers you. It's a blessed thing that it bothers the sin in your own life and in your family's life and in your friend's life, that you're bothered by that. That is a blessed thing. That is truly someone having the favor of God upon their life, that you can see your wretched condition that you know that you are unworthy, that you know that you are poor in spirit, but yet you know that God is greater. So thank God for the eyes that you have. Thank God that you could see. You are blessed. You are blessed by that. That's You got to know that you are favored by God, and it's the proof of it is in your own life as you mourn and turn away from sin. That is a blessed thing. So blessed that Jesus puts it in his Beatitudes that blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. See, he comforts our deficiency. If you notice these two Beatitudes, they deal with our deficiency. The other ones, as we get into later, it's going to deal with our interaction with other people, peacemakers and different things like that. But the first two Beatitudes, it deals with your deficiency. Poor in spirit? You're saying, I don't have enough. And now you're mourning over the fact that you're poor in spirit and you're a sinner. See, that's what the first Beatitudes do. It, it breaks you. I like how Spurgeon say that God starts this Beatitude with one that we can all step on. It's like a ladder. The first rung of the ladder is real low, right? It would have been hard if he would have started with, bless are those who are persecuted for my sake. But he starts with saying, okay, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, low rung. Blessed are those who mourn. And as we go down longer in, in the Beatitudes, you see it progresses. But the first two just deals with our deficiency. 
That's why this is Christianity 101. Christianity is 101 is saying that I am broken. It's acknowledging that you are broken, that you need a savior, that you are not sufficient in yourself. And you realize that. So you mourn and weep over that. And you look to Jesus as savior. This is basic Christianity. Mourning for sin, being poor in spirit, being broken. Let us, let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we thank you, Lord, for your grace upon our lives. God, we thank you that with these new hearts that you have given us, we can feel. We feel unrighteousness and sin as it cre tries to creep up in our spirit and our soul. God, you have given us eyes to see sin and unrighteousness, and we hate it. For we know we have a hope in you that it can all be changed, Jesus. So we say thank you. Thank you for your cross. Thank you, God, that we have this mercy upon our lives. God, outside of you, we are nothing. We're just these poor sinners, Jesus. But you have given us life. You have brought us into your kingdom by your Holy Spirit. And you have put your word upon our heart. So, Lord, we thank you, God. I'm praying today for my brothers and sisters, God, that they have a sensitivity to the sin and unrighteousness in their own life and in the lives of others. That they look to you in those moments. That they look to the comfort that they have in you, Jesus in the midst of a brokenness and dark world. So, Lord, you are Savior, you are King. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.